This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am, of course, your host, Liv, because who on earth else would be here talking into your ears right now? I am here today with, yes, a conversation episode. This week I spoke with Joel Christensen from Brandeis, who is also a face behind the Sententiae Antiquae blog, and I'm going to just assume that I pronounced that correctly, but I'm not great at Latin. Um, And it is a a resource for accessible translations of ancient Greek and Latin, among so many other things. Great Twitter presence, always something exciting going on there. And we talked all about Homer, the idea of Homer, what Homer was and was not, what the evidence is for that. Talked all about Homeric epic and epic form and composition. And oh my god, so fascinating. Such a really interesting insight into the history behind the idea of Homer and Homeric epic in the ancient Greek world. I learned so much when it comes to that whole idea, which I mean, I I just sort of exist in the world with the epics. And I rarely have thought about how they came to be beyond, you know, Homeric bards. But this has been so interesting. It was just absolutely fascinating. A couple notes. We did have some technical difficulties, so there are a little bit of 
echoey runovers, but I tried to cut them down as much as humanly possible. I am not particularly skilled when it comes to editing. You'd think I would have learned more, but it's really hard. That and uh, due to scheduling and my own inability to understand how babies function, um, we did have Joel's baby in the room, Layla. She is lovely and adorable, and she did make some sounds now and again. I, I cut out what I could, and there are moments where I do leave in talk about where she is and what's going on just so that it kind of makes more sense rather than a conversation being super clipped up with uh, baby sounds. Um, So just a warning about that. Honestly, the conversation is so interesting and incredible that a couple little, couple little baby, you know, not straight crying, baby sounds. That's what we're calling them. I think it's all worth it for this fascinating conversation about Homer, and not just about Homer, but also toxicity of hero myth and ideation, which is really interesting, and sort of going into how the way we see some of these men, particularly like Odysseus and Achilles, as heroes, then creates this larger problem with what the idea of heroism really is. Super fascinating stuff all around. There's talk of toxic masculinity and patriarchal nonsense and men's rights activism as it relates to some heroism shit. Truly incredible conversation. I also do appreciate that one of the only times that Layla gets a little bit louder in our conversation is when there's talk of Theseus. And I just think, you know, she sensed it. She gets it. Sounds like she's a real fan of Homer and has some real issues with people like Theseus, and I respect that. Conversations. Who was this Homer guy, anyway? Homeric Theories with Joel Christensen. excited to to talk about Homer. So let's jump right in. I think the most interesting thing to me is the idea of Homer as a person. And by that, I mean, you know, whatever that means of however many people or because I personally, you know, I, I don't know the the background or what the theories are or anything really, you know, I did my undergrad 10 years ago, and we didn't dive into too much of that beyond reading Homer. Um, but for me, like, you know, I read the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they're just so different that I think that alone to me is so interesting of, of you know, the idea of who, who wrote either or both or whatever. I mean, the, the, there's a huge, there are so many different options on what Homer is or who and where the epics come from um, that you can literally spend decades working on. Um, and one of the things that's really hard to convey is those of us who have strong convictions have often come to those after so much work um, that like it's almost impossible sometimes to give all the information so someone can make a choice, right? Um, and there are a couple things obscuring our ability to talk about it. So I, I want to get to sort of the obstacles for us to actually get to the truth before I talk about my opinions. One is the the genesis of the poems and the textual transmission is so complicated and tortured that it's impossible to say anything certain about their origins right and i think that what happens is that people on either side tend to obscure the evidence 
So, so first thing is obstacles, right? Obstacle one is the process of textual transmission and origins is so confused and tortured um, that it's really hard to sort of drill back um, to, to a, an original of any type. Obstacle number two is the impulse to drill back to an original. The very idea that there's an or text or origin is so based in non-archaic ideas mm. um, that it really, not quite perverts, but I'll say perverts, uh, twists um, the way we talk about the question, right? And option three, sort of going along with this, um, are cultural aesthetics. Um, we find it almost impossible to conceive of what it's like to be part of a non-literate culture. And we have this it's false dichotomy, right? If you're not literate, then you're primitive. If you're not writing things down um, and you're oral, um, then things can't be complex and sophisticated. So those three basic barriers make it really hard to even talk about the nature of Homeric poetry as we have it, all right? Um, so I'm going to pause there. Do you want to talk about one of those things or can I keep rolling? I mean, I, I'll just add because that's so interesting and it's something that comes up for me a lot where people will ask me like, well, you know, I heard this version of myth, you told this version, like what's the original or just the very idea of original myth, right? People want to use that term. They want to understand, you know, I tell all these different variations all, you know, I've covered one version three years ago and I'll redo it again and it's completely different. And that's just because I found more sourcing and I, I use primary sources now in a way that when I first started, I didn't know what I was doing and I just kind of figured out what I figured out. And so I'm constantly like navigating that with my listeners of, no, you don't need to figure it out. There's no timeline. You don't need to figure out like why something conflicts with another thing in the myth because they weren't thinking about that. It wasn't a concern. It was, yeah, this oral tradition. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by all of that. And I think yeah, it's something that I'm very familiar with, basically. <laughs> so so we had these cultural problems that make it hard for us to understand uh, or that make us deny the possibility that these texts that we have come out of a place where there is no author, author mm -hmm. and that they don't need individuals to create their complexity. So when we deal with the complex, so I'll go back to the textual transmission issue, um, but our basic cultural prejudice and belief is that to have something of structure and complexity, you have to have a designer behind it who intended for it to be the case, hmm. right? Um, and that that is based in a, a cultural perspective that's deeply informed by Christian views, um, but also deeply informed by individualist ideas that are, are kind of post-Homeric that arise with literacy. Not to say that the Homeric epics don't show an individualist ideal, um, but we, just, we project a lot of values on, on searching for the author, all right? Um, so what, what I'll do, I'll just like talk briefly about oral formulaic theory um, and then go back to your question about sort of the Iliad and the Odyssey being very different because they're mm. all right? Um, so oral formulaic theory, you know, really, it, it was anticipated by Hellenistic authors, um, it was anticipated further by Friedrich Augustus, Augustus Wolf, um, who was a Homeric scholar in Germany. Uh, he published something called the Prolegomena at Homerum in 1795. Um, and it really came to its head after Milman Perry and Albert Lord did their field studies in the Balkans, former Yugoslavia, um, in between the, the two world wars. 
right? And it emerges out of a place where the question used to be Unitarians versus analysts. So people who said the Homeric epics are whole and they come from one author and analysts said, no, they were put together by editors um, and uh, from a bunch of traditional narratives. What happened with uh, Perry and Lord's theory is that they found, they showed pretty clearly one, uh, as uh, Perry showed, uh, Homeric language developed alongside meter. Um, and it's formulaic in the sense that you can see how it's actually built together, right? It is an amal amalgam dialect that makes it possible to compose in performance. Um, so you don't actually need, you don't have with Homer what you have with Virgil, which is someone sitting down, like trying to make the meter work. Mm -hmm. So when someone sang the first line of the Iliad, so the first line of the Odyssey, um, they didn't think of it as individual words, right? These are themes and these are ideas in which the language that you're contemplating them is wed to the meter, right? So language does amazing things. And part of what Milman Perry and linguists at the time didn't have access to is modern linguistics, which shows that like you can put almost any restriction on a language you want and it will find some way to function. Like language is in a way very much like viral life. I've been thinking this a lot with COVID, right? Um, which is that it adapts to its environment and its needs and it finds a way to work. So you can have languages that have no morphological tense, right? Instead, you mark tense in time um, with uh, lexical items, with a word before, now, after. You have languages in which nouns have tense, right? Which is hard for us to think of, speaking of Indo-European languages, language, but you can put any restriction you want on a language and make it work. So the first leap that's hard for people to understand is that most people in archaic Greece could compose hexameter to one extent or another, hmm. right? Um, as part of being trained into a system. And we know this because the language of Homer isn't just epic, right? Uh, oracles use the same language. Uh, elegiac poetry use the same language modified early philosophers composed in and sang in hexameter. Um, and so this was the language of authority in the ancient world. Um, and so the, the, the thing that's hard for us to understand is that you can actually stand and recite poetry or sing it um, without, without sitting around with a pen and paper and figuring it all out. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And in, a, in any system, poetry or art, comes uh, between in the tension between sort of uh, the language you inherit from people and what that particular song or piece of work does with that language, right? Um, so the second thing that was hard for people to really conceive is that long poems could be performed repeatedly over time, right? So one thing that we find then from Lord's theory, um, from Lord's work and the singer of tales um, is that you have these systems, these bards, these singers in Yugoslavia who sing extremely long songs based on themes um, that they compose in the moment. Um, and so this is great. And what people often do is they stop at that moment and they don't follow up in the entire field of um, oral poetics and anthropology and other fields that's still developing. And so one of the real dangers of this type of work is uh, assuming that analogy equals truth, right? When we find an, an analogy, um, it shows something's possible. It doesn't show it's probable. Another good example, and one that always gets to me, is in Rajasthan, um, there in India, there's a traditional epic of Dave Narayan, 
who is a cattle rustler. And the song is sung at a, or performed at a yearly um, festival that lasts seven days. And the singers sing from dusk until dawn, basically, every day from memory, right? Or they're composing. What they have actually as an aid for, co for composition is a singer has an assistant with a tapestry that has images of the tale that's illuminated as they're performing. And in the 70s and 80s, different performances of this were recorded, and it's longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the difference between the performances is under 5%, right? Wow. Under 5% for seven days of singing, compared to the Iliad and the Odyssey, which probably take around 24 hours or less, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the big, one big challenge is our belief that it's possible to compose long things with intricate structure um, in performance and that you don't have to be one person doing it, right? And so that leads into sort of the secondary problem. Like if it is possible that we have this long traditional poem that can be sung in performance, does the genius come from the individual singing it or the tradition? And this is where I think most modern Homerists split is that decision. Do you think what's most important is the last singer or the entire tradition that came before? I think that people choose the last singer because of cultural prejudice, because it's hard for us to understand that communal creation can actually create extremely complex and rewarding works of art. We just don't want to see it that way. We're, we're so prejudiced against collective creation and collectivity and so much towards individualism that we can't almost see out outside of ourselves, right? And so I think these cultural prejudices make us uh, accept the possibility of long form composition and performance as a type of art, um, but downgrade the probability of that's where the Iliad and the Odyssey came. And that's what we can think. Uh, and the, for me, the magic is trying to reconstruct the audience experience of it and how important it is that these poems respond to audiences over time. Um, one of the things you noted is how different the Iliad and the Odyssey is. And the people in the past have, have said, based on their best knowledge, well, clearly this means that they come from different people, right? Because they're assuming that difference is from difference in human beings, not from themes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Albert Lord and other oralists show really convincingly is that theme creates diction and structure. All right. The theme of the Odyssey is very different from the theme of the Iliad. But the one place where their language gets really close is in book 22 when Odysseus is killing everybody. Okay. And there are other ways, like there are books of the Iliad in which you have really strange language. The language of book 10 is very different from the rest of the poem. The language of book 21, when Achilles is fighting the river, is also really different from the rest of the poem. And you want to add something else in? The funeral um, games for Patroclus, very different language. And as you can imagine, over time, people have said, well, these books don't belong because they're not the same. And to me, and you know, anybody listening to this who's on the other side of the equation um, to, will, will object, but to me, this is very lazy thinking. Mm -hmm. right? It's like going outside, looking at a tree, not liking its shape, and saying, that's not a tree. That's something different. That branch needs to go. 
right? For me, the, it is the job of a literary uh, interpreter um, to go to ridiculous extents to try to understand a piece of art in its own terms, rather than insisting that they should be able to change it, right? That there's something wrong with it. And so then this goes back again um, to the problem of transmission, right? Um, so if we accept the possibility that the Iliad and the Odyssey come out of an oral context, and if we accept in turn that part of their difference is connected to theme and audiences, right? The Iliad's a poem of war, it teaches you how to die. The Odyssey is a poem of life, it teaches you how, what surviving is for, right? If we have these two different things, why don't we have anything else if there was an oral tradition, right? Why don't we have more variants, right? Um, and then finally, how did we go from having an oral tradition to having a textual? And these, the, the, the fact is, you can't actually answer these questions. You can say what's likely, but you can't actually, without a time machine, which would cause its whole own problems, um, you can't actually solve them. We do know that the text we have was probably written down in Athens, and it was probably influenced by Athenian power and money around the time of the Persian Wars. But then nobody read it, okay? Here's the thing that people just don't understand. When you write down an oral tradition, people like don't read the transcript, all right? So Minna Scott Jensen has a book called Writing Homer. Um, she says some things that they are a little out there, but one thing she, she, she asserts is that what probably happened is that in the first time they were written down, if they're written down in monumental form, um, they were deposited in a temple for safekeeping or somewhere else and nobody touched them. All right, because you wouldn't suddenly change your the way you enjoy art, right? If you're really into listening to music and someone was like, look, we have to pre preserve Taylor Swift for all time. We're gonna write down everything. You're not gonna start re reading the lyrics instead of listening because that's not what you do with the genre, right? So when genres transform, in order for them to be enjoyed, uh, their use needs to transform. And so we see this happening in the texts that show up in the fourth century. So in Plato, in Aristotle, and others, we see evidence of people turning to written texts. But then it's really during the Hellenistic period and libraries like those at Alexandria, Antioch, Pella, um, where you divorce the epics from their performance context. And people suddenly start reading them and editing them and worrying about the right version. So, you know, when we go back to that moment of dictation, this is where dictation theory comes in. Um, we have another moment where people are worried about um, where does the authority come from? So one, one of the ways that people who really want to believe in a single authorship theory uh, adapt to the, these facts um, is they focus on the moment of dictation and say, well, that singer or the singers who are involved in dictation and the editor were the ones who made this fanciful thing that we made mm. or that we have, right? Um, and I, I'll go back to another tree metaphor for understanding this one, right? Um, if you go outside and look at a tree that's particularly well suited to its environment, you might say, well, who's responsible for this, right? And someone may say, well, the gardener put it there. I'm like, well, maybe the person planted it, but what about those who cared for it? What about the people who trimmed it afterwards? And what about the generation of human beings um, who uh, manipulated the genome of trees to get this specific type of ornamental tree. And then on top of that, what about the aesthetics of treeness, right? How you and I have been judged or judged, have been trained 
um, to judge the natural environment based on aesthetics that's, that we've inherited. Right. We expect trees to look a certain way and it's rarely how they would have looked in the wild um, or, you know, a uh, hundred centuries ago. For me, like oral poetry is like this, right? We selected for certain types. We find structure in it because we're looking for structure and because it comes out of a process that enables and incentivizes poets to structure things in a ring structure. But we don't see the hundreds, if not millions of voices that were involved in its creation. So at the end, what we have is, you know, people who want to privilege the final composer in some way. And then people like me who want to say that composer could have been almost anybody. It may have been multiple people. Um, and it was a process of audience, of performers over time. So that's my very long answer to your question. Um, but, but for me, it cuts to the heart uh, of what of how we think literature and art exists in the world. And I like to apply the same sort of thought process to other things. So if we're talking about a painting someone made, you might say, well, that's a Picasso. And I might say, well, that's fine. He's really cool and everything. Um, but what about the art of painting? Like, where did it come from? What about the conversations he was having? What about the history of art that brought him to that moment to create that thing, right? And a painting is in a way, not to slight art historians, but a single painting in a way is nowhere near the complexity of 16,000 lines of the Iliad and the Odyssey and 12,000 lines of the Odyssey and the tremendous histories that they bring with them. And so I think for us as audience members um, or modern readers, it is a, a lack of imagination that keeps us from seeing the poems as what I think they really are, which is uh, sui generis, right? Unlike anything else that we know um, from the traditional folk. That's all just so fascinating. I mean, I've sort of, I've, I've certainly, you know, I've always existed in the, at least in the belief system generally, that it was certainly all based in oral tradition. And I'm not, you know, I don't think I've ever notably believed that Homer specifically was a person, though, funny enough, I realize he's sitting directly behind me where yeah. in my camera, Homer, <laughs> the version of Homer oh, that yeah. they sell in Athens at the door shops <laughs> is sitting behind me. But it is so interesting to, to, I mean, for one, that blew my mind to hear that it would have been um, composed in that way in Athens um, or written down or whatever it was there. That's fascinating because I would have never, I mean. No, it's so, I mean, we have shaky evidence that other cities made their, uh, made copies as well. Mm -hmm. And there's also apocryphal stuff to show how important Homer is of city founders introducing Homer into their cities. So like, uh, like Kyrgyz allegedly introduced Homer um, to the Spartans, right? And Solon allegedly was involved in Athens, um, but later we say it's the Pisistratids, but it really comes down to uh, the materiality of the writing of the poems. I think in the modern world, we completely underestimate how expensive of a task it would have been to record these poems in the fifth century BCE. This wasn't just like, oh, I'll, I'll get someone to write down a book, right? This was like, I want to do something nobody's ever done before because I'm a baller, right? Like I'm going to show off and we're going to own it um, because that is a talisman of our power and authority. And you, you couldn't go to bookshops in Athens and buy the Iliad. This is, just, I mean, it's, it's so many scrolls. It's ridiculous. Um, so I, I think, again, it's a lack of imagination, um, but also we've been incentivized to think that way, right? We construct the past, not in its own image, but in our own. 
um, and we raise up what we've done in the meantime by, by doing that. Um, and so I think a lot of what we need to do is to defamiliarize ourselves with it um, and to really look around Homer for evidence of where the epics came from. Mm-hmm. I've always found it so interesting. And I mean, that certainly sounds like Athens, you know, the <laughs> showing off kind of thing. Um, but I've always found it so interesting that Athens is basically, I mean, it's, the, you know, I think in the catalog of ships, somebody's from Athens. But other than that, Athens is like, exactly, Athens is like not in the Iliad, which has always been so interesting to me. And I know it's time frame, but just because they wrote it down there, I'm still surprised. <laughs> well, I mean, but I think that's actually part of the, the, the trick of Homer. But the, the epics really endeavor to make their main characters no, from nowhere, mm. right? To appeal to the maximum number of polities, right? And that's why I really see the are these epics coming at the end of the performative tradition, at a period um, when you have when you have a consciousness of all these other Greek places um, and a real attempt to appeal to them all without identifying with one of the strong ones. Right. I mean, notice Thebes is not there. It barely even exists in the catalog. Corinth doesn't matter. Right. Sparta's kind of there in the Odyssey, but it's a weird sort of sick Sparta. Like it's just like a, a house. Right. But the main characters of each epic are, are from borderlands. Right. Thea is not a place. Right. It just barely exists. And Odysseus's Ithaca has so many problems with it that to this day, people are like, oh, it's in Greenland, or oh, it's actually Ireland, or oh, like crazy things, right? Um, the fact is, the fact is, fictional places are fictional places, right? And what was important, I think, um, for the epics and why they were really selected among, uh, from among all the other competing tales, is that they tell something that never actually happened, which is a story of a great coalition of Greeks uniting against an Eastern enemy. I think there's no accident. Um, that this became a popular narrative tradition around the time that the Greeks were engaging with the Persians more and more, right? It's just like, you know, it, it became a convenient way of thinking about the world um, that really responded to the, the experiences and interests of the audiences. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, they were certainly, or it was more timely to be thinking about an enemy from the east but at the same time it's always interesting to me too that troy is i mean pretty objectively like almost the good guy not you know like that you really you feel for hector in a way that you don't really feel you certainly don't feel for like agamemnon and that's always interesting Mm -hmm. well i think that's why that's why like it doesn't completely coalesce around that idea of the greeks versus the other Mm -hmm. instead you know i think probably what happens the trojan war narrative was always there in such a way but it became selective and selected and more prominent. Um, and you see this in a way, um, I think, as you get farther ahead in the development of myths, um, as coalition narratives become really um, attractive, right? From the Caledonian boar hunt to Jason and the Argo to the Seven Against Thebes. It's this whole experimental idea uh, of what happens like if we knit together larger groups of people. Right. What happens when we send our big man against their big man and they have to work together? Right. Um, it's like, you know, you spend 10 years trying to get to the Avengers movie. Right. You, you know, give everybody their origin narrative. And then suddenly the individuals aren't as important as they were. Um, and so I, I think we have to put the Iliad and the Odyssey in that context. And then, you know, people like to put 
someone like Barry Powell or others will put the Iliad and the Odyssey at the beginning of the Greek literary tradition. Um, and I, I want to ask always, well, what if we do the opposite? What if we put it near the end? How does that change the way we think about it? Um, because we know that it wasn't written down really early um, and that it was still changing. Um, and so that's really been sort of the way I've approached it for a while. And I'm pretty convinced. I mean, my, my basic feeling is that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written down partly for power, but also because society was changing. In Athens, tragedy became more popular. Lyric poetry rose in a way. I mean, it was important before. Um, and then you had the exporting of culture as part of empire and power. Um, and so I, th I, I think you have to look sort of for cultural motivators for taking a traditional art form and encoding it in a new way. Do you have any thoughts around that in relation to the fact that we don't have like the follow-up stories, you know, the all the all rest of the epic cycle? Yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, for one, I actually don't think the epic cycle ever existed. Mm, okay. <laughs> I think the epic cycle is a construction of Hellenistic mm. scholars who were endeavoring to tell the whole tale. Um, mm. I think what we had... So if you look at like, if you really take a deep dive in the scholarship, people claim there were different cycles. There was a Theban cycle, a Heracles cycle, and then the Trojan War one. Um, and I just find it extremely unlikely that all the stories were ever systematized um, in such a way or that they were all told. Instead, we have a bunch of narratives that, that were told that may have been episodic. And if you think about the distinction, so the details will say something like the Iliopersis, the Sack of Troy, was two or five books, right? How is that even the same, right, as the Iliad, the Odyssey, or the Telegony was six books, or, you know? Um, and we have fragments, but all the fragments that we have are selected and embedded in manuscripts where people are trying to explain the Iliad and the Odyssey. So that's a giant red flag right there, right? Is that we have the construction of a past system of thought, of art, in order to explain all the inconsistencies and clarities and, and sort of shadows around something that's been authorized. Um, so who knows what poems weren't included in this? Who knows how we selected like this poem because it fit into the cycle? I mean, so you know, our best evidence for, for the epic cycle is Proclus. Um, and like, he just has all these poems which conveniently tell the whole story of the Trojan War. Like that's not actually how oral poetry works, right? Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily think the epic cycle existed. That said, I do think that there were a multitude of narratives around the Trojan War that people loved. And they existed in lyric poetry, in elegiac poetry, in art, on the stage, right? They were everywhere. And when you lived them in ancient Greece, they were part of your life, right? And it's not until, again, you get outside of ancient Greece proper and into the Hellenistic period, where you really get a construction of these elaborate things. I'm going to grab the, the baby again. So I, that, that's where I basically stand. And I think I, I've written a bit with my friend Eldon Barker about it. Um, I think it's only a slightly controversial stance to say the epic cycle didn't exist. Um, but I'm sure that many of your podcast listeners will be like, whoa, this guy's crazy. Um, but really, I mean, honestly, the first time I heard about it, I was like, well, it's cool. I remember being an undergrad and thinking about the epic cycle, but the deeper I got into it, the shakier the evidence was. And, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that scholars have just created, hmm. right? You know, that old, old onion joke, 
a joke article about how historians made up ancient Greece. Um, <laughs> I think the epic cycle is like that. Not that there wasn't a poem named the Telegony, right? Mm -hmm. But that there wasn't like a discrete series of poems that told the whole story. Right, That's right. just not how ancient poetry and myth works. I hate the idea of the telegony, so I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it did exist. And I think what, it was what? really old. Such a weird, I don't like it. Well, you don't, <laughs> you don't like the ending where Telegonus marries, marries Penelope and Telemachus marries Circe. It's gross. I like to pretend it didn't exist. I have not told it on the podcast and I will not tell it on the podcast. Oh, I'm, like, I'm sorry about that. No, no, but I, so, so I actually think like the, the telegony and its end and even the end of the Odyssey is a function of how impossible it is to end the heroic, heroic tradition, mm. right? And like you end up with a bunch of weird stuff, right? It peters out or you're like, basically, we're just going to tie up all these knots. Right. So if we have all these people get married and live in a fantasy land, then we don't have to worry about what, what happened to them. Yeah. I mine is, I should say, entirely based in my bias towards Odysseus. And I just don't like that. That's how it ends. So I just kind of like, no, it's fine. It doesn't happen. I give a, a, a lecture every year at admissions day at Brandeis, which is called So You Think You Know Odysseus. And it starts out by showing all the by showing a handful of places in the Homeric poem in the Homeric poems where they're, it's basically like Odysseus is a pretty bad dude. Um, and then I go through the names of the 18 children he had apart from Telemachus and the mythical tradition and, and all the things that he did after the end of the Odyssey. Uh, He's not a great guy. I recognize that. I just love him. Kind of a shit burger. <laughs> he is. Absolutely. But I love him. Um, how, who did he have all those children with? Hmm. Well, he had a couple with Penelope when he came back. Hmm. Um, but he had, you know, depending on how you count it, five to eight with Cersei, um, two. Eight? Yeah, I don't know. I'm counting different names. Um, two with Calypso and then a, a bunch with, um, random princesses in Northern Greece after he left. Um, so part of the reason why there are so many names is that there are different geographical traditions. Um, so like Heracles, Odysseus becomes an index for the Greeks as they go out into the world um, and, you know, colonize and trade and settle. And they create, they write their new locations into their old stories through their myths. Um, so Odysseus is one of the wandering inseminators of Greek myth. He just goes around and has a child with someone. And then that's where Latinus comes from. So like mm -hmm. some Romans are there. There's a Romos. There's an Auson, becomes Ausonians. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of, of uh, ethnonyms and toponyms that are related to sort of uh, Greeks uh, mythographing their world. I do love when those things come up in the podcast, which is obviously a lot of just the the way in which regions wanted to claim heroic connections and, and sort of how that changes. I love that Atalanta, it like, I go a lot of Theo.com because it's a great source. Oh, for, it's a great resource. It, I love it so much. And they have this whole little section on Atalanta that I'll always remember because it's like, okay, either she's from Boeotia or she's from um, Arcadia or there's two Atalantas, one from Boeotia and one from Arcadia, who both like were raised by bears. And you're like, I think it's probably likely that they just both wanted to claim her. Yeah, no, but but that's the, you know, to go back to like your original question about Homer, like all the evidence about Homer is as wild as that and beyond. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a great book. I, th I think 
what should have been the last word on the issue is a book by Barbara Graziosi called Inventing Homer. Mm. Um, and I, she goes through all of the evidence about uh, the lives of Homer, the various layers and times that people are claiming him, um, and then unfolds sort of the motivations and interests in creating the idea of Homer. And in a way, the book can be read uh, as uh, as showing that Homer, talking about Homer as a cultural construct, and it says nothing about the authorship of the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? What it says is that the idea of Homer is a cultural construct, right? Um, which is something that even, um, you know, a strict sort of single author person like Martin L. West agrees with, um, which is that, you know, the, the idea of Homer is a cultural notion. Certainly that seems like, certainly from my limited experience, that seems fairly accepted. But yeah, the idea that certainly it's still usually like, you know, a few authors, you know, sat down and, and wrote it out and that sort of, and then they became Homer or whatever. There's this thing that was just tweeted today and I'll, I'll jo- I, I can say it because I joke around with Armand about it, but Armand Dangor wrote, like, you know, the meme, like, oh, if I'm kidnapped, like, this is what I'll say. And he's like, oh, the home, home, the epics weren't written by a single bard, but by a committee of bards. And this is a thing, this phrase is a Martin West phrase that you find throughout Oxbridge classicists is this like sort of diminutive uh, pass, right? Oh, it's just a committee of bards, which actually shows that you don't understand oral poetry at all. And he did. So, I mean, ML West and, you know, lots of people like him just have no interest um, in the theory and don't engage with it. But anyway, I mean, it, look, the, the, it's fascinating stuff. And I think the difference though, between now and say a hundred years ago, is you can kind of fundamentally disagree on the question of whether or not Homer is a collective work or individual, but still come to many of the same conclusions in interpreting the poems. Um, because even those who, who focus on single authorship understand the cultural importance of performance and audience reception in a way we didn't when people were just like, oh, it's one Homer or nothing, or oh, the poems are an amalgam of a bunch of different poems by a sloppy editor. Right. Those used to be the terms of the de- debate in 1921. But now in 2021, we are a little better. I think. Yeah, it's it's all I mean, I've never thought this much about Homer as an idea. It just because of my role sort of is just more to enjoy the myths. And now, thankfully, I could have conversations with people who can break it down a little bit more for me. Um, but I have always found it interesting. So I'm just don't have a particularly smart question or intelligent sounding question about this, but I found it interesting that the Odyssey has so many more monsters and like mythological creatures. Do you have any thoughts on like why that would be in terms of how they were put together? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so I'll start by saying almost all the Odyssey's monsters and mythological creatures are in the story Odysseus tells. Mm -hmm. All right. And one of the things to understand is that the the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the, most of my students now are too young to appro- appreciate this, um, but the Iliad and the Odyssey are like the Borg from Star Trek. All right. They went out in the world and they absorbed other narrative traditions and other genres to become the master poems uh, that covered everything. And so they're made up of different <laughs> generic movements and intentions. And part of what's happening with the Odyssey is it's interested in ethnography, right? In going out and charting the world and defining what it means to be a human by which (laughs) the Greeks meant what it means to be Greek, 
mm-hmm. right? And so it's a kind of tale you get from sailors, right? They go out and they're like, oh, way past these rocks, way to the west, there are these mermaids, <laughs> right? Um, and it, it, it's it, it, exactly the type of tale you tell people to warn them of what's out there and to explain why you are what you are. And you go to the monsters and what do they do? They eat people, they don't They don't engage in Xenia, they keep people from their homecoming, they take drugs all the time, right? Um, you know, all these things that happen outside the world that uh, in the periphery that allow audiences to define who they are in contradiction to them. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's part of what's going on there. And it's also, I think, I think it's also a sneaky critique of myth, right? Because you have this guy who's taking advantage of his audience and he's telling the tallest tale ever. And they even say, they break down in book 11. And Alkinos is like, this is like a load of nonsense, but I'm loving it, right? Um, and, and, you know, Odysseus is compared um, to a bard, to a singer. And especially even when he's talking to Penelope in book 19, or. 18, I think it's book 19. Um, the words that are repeated there come from or echo the beginning of the theogony, where the muses come to Hesiod and say, Hey, country bumpkin, um, we know how to speak the truth, but we also know how to speak lies that sound like the truth when we want to. And you know, absolutely, you have no way of knowing what's going on, right? Um, and so I really think the subtext of the Odyssey is the power of narratives and language to read to rewrite the world, right? To change it. And what Odysseus does is he creates a reality through his words that's like the type of cock and bull stories that people would tell around campfires or would tell children. And the Odyssey shows Odysseus using that narrative to achieve his homecoming, right? And so I think by embedding all the fantastic details with the exception of some stuff with Athena and Calypso, by embedding all the monsters into Odysseus's tale, the Odyssey actually wraps it up in a, a bow, like a package of plausible deniability, right? Like you actually don't know if any of it happened mm-hmm. and, and you don't care. Um, so so that that's my answer. How, how's that fit? I like it. I mean, I, I want to believe that Odysseus was telling the complete truth because I want to believe that Scylla and Charybdis fully existed. But again, there's some bias here, but I don't know why I feel this way about Odysseus, but I do. But I like the idea that that's all, that that's entirely true. And then Virgil comes along and he's like, okay, but Aeneas saw all of this too. He was just smart enough to avoid it all. Because yeah, that's yeah, always yeah. what I love about the Aeneas. But that's the thing. So, you know, it, the Argonautic narrative where a lot of this stuff happened coexisted with the odyssey Mm -hmm. and so i think part of what's going on there again back to the borg thing is the odyssey is basically saying anything you can do i can do better right i'm going to have all these themes i'm going to have all these details that people really love and then i'm going to make you question if it's real or not sorry one more baby moving um so i think that that that's what i say there and uh you know it's also a plausible deniability because the epics had different audiences right? There would be people who would know about Scylla and Charybdis. There would be people like you who would be really like engaged in it being true, right? And so, you know, we have to think about, and this is terrible, but the the epics existed in something of a marketplace of culture, right? They had to, they had to win audiences, please them, challenge them, engage with them um, in, in ways that, you know, I think people don't often think about. This isn't about 
you know, being an honest artist or making a statement, right? This is about surviving in a complex cultural environment. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Fascinating. Um, It's that you're answering all the questions so that I don't have any more. Um, But I would love to, to, to talk a little about more and sort of this is me registering how troubling it is that I love Odysseus. I'd like to to hear your thoughts on the toxicity of heroes that you'd sort of mentioned when we first talked. Um, So I think, sorry, we'll see if Layla's going to work out some of her issues. Um, So one of the things that I face a lot, and I I don't know if the education's like this, I don't know if the education is like this in Canada and the UK, but I suspect that it's um, similar. But I often get students from high school who've been taught that Achilles and Odysseus are heroes, right? Uh, Which means like they're cool. Uh, (laughs) And instead, they're central figures, right? And one of the things that we often miss in reading the, the epics is they're both set up as terrible, as failures from the beginning. Right. So the odd, the Iliad makes it clear that Achilles killed his own people. Right. And, you know, it starts out by saying, you know, God, a single rage of Achilles, that sent myriad Achaeans to its doom. 
This isn't a story about killing enemies. This is about causing the death of your own people, right? That's pretty toxic, right? And the Odyssey begins the same way. It starts by saying, tell us about Odysseus who saw all these things, right? Who suffered so much and tried to save his people, but couldn't even though he really wanted to, right? But they died and they were dumb, right? I mean, that's, that's a really weird way to begin a poem. And when people talk about the Odyssey, what do they talk about? The Cyclops episode, Odysseus getting home to Penelope, um, Telemachus being really whiny and annoying, right? But none of those three things are in the introduction to the poem, right? So there's a short article by a scholar I know, Erwin Cook, called Active and Passive um, Heroics in the Odyssey where he basically says, look, we miss, because of modern, modern cultural preferences, um, we miss the fact that heroes in the ancient Greek world suffer and cause suffering. That's what they do. And so I think that the epics are supposed to train us um, to see how big men are problems. They're challenges to communities, um, especially if you don't want to go to war, right? Um, so Achilles, literally wishes for his people to die, and then is surprised when he gets his wish and Patroclus dies, right? And then he gets all angry. Who should he be angry at but Achilles, right? Odysseus goes to war, takes 12 ships of his people, and comes home with none of them. And if you read the story he tells, most of their deaths is his fault. And then when he gets home, he does exactly the thing that we hate the Cyclops for. He locks everybody in his home, he murders everyone inside and then like just tries to go on with his day, right? And then on top of that, he allows Telemachus to have his way with, with hanging the handmaidens, the enslaved women, and then mutilates Melanthius, right? And one of the things people often miss is that these enslaved people were born into slavery in Odysseus's household. These are human beings who were raised in his community, right? And he comes home cuts off the guy's testicles, shoves it in his mouth, cuts off his ears and nose, and like lets all the women be hanged. Like, I, I don't know how anybody can read that and think, we should like this guy. Right? No offense, right? Um, no. But I think part of it is the way he's presented. Like this entire tradition, you know, the ancient Stoics saw Odysseus as a Stoic and like, well, we have to be a survivor like him. I think part of the odyssey is that we're supposed to contemplate the steep cost of survival, right? And what we lose and what we have to give in order to be like him. And I, I don't think we're supposed to say that's, that it's good. No. And I should clarify, I only like him kind of till he comes home and then he, because okay. I like his story, you know, and I kind of like him in the Iliad. But then when he gets home, he starts lying his ass off the way he can come up with that lie. Like, of being the Cretan, the details that he just comes up with. I'm like, you're a sociopath. You're a terrifying human being. Absolutely is. And I actually think, I think that's what ancient audiences are supposed to walk away with, which, and, you know, not to get too uh, political with the ancient poems, um, but I think they're arriving at a time when audiences are deeply critical of the elite and where the oh. idea that one person is going to save you is actually antithetical to what's making Greek city-states work, which is people working together, right? Hero worship is essentially uh, like the most anti-democratic sentiment you could have, right? Instead of working together, um, instead of relying on people. 
and a Greek myth in general, as you know, probably better than I at this point, um, it doesn't show heroes having families, right? I mean, Heracles kills his first wife and children, right? And then is killed by his, his next wife. Um, and I mean, it's really actually hard to find a story of a Greek heroic figure um, who has anything like what you might think of as a satisfying life. Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, it's like the, the, the toxicity comes in with what happens when these are the stories you tell, right? Um, what happens when, when you grow up hearing these stories about glory, about individual greatness and misunderstanding them? And I look around and I see things like, um, like school shootings, right? And massacres. And I see the, in reading the treatises, the ideas of people like the, um, what are they? The men's rights advocates oh um, is this entitlement, this idea that I should have this much. And what, what is more heroic in the Iliadic terms than throwing a fit and murdering people because you don't have the stuff you thought you deserved, right? I mean, that's a core, that's a rot of heroic culture, right? What is, what is men right, men's rights activism, but throwing a fit because you don't have access to the women you think you deserve, right? And, and, and that's what I see the beginning of the Iliad. Like Achilles loses a girl who has no agency of his own. He's like, I'm gonna throw a fit and cause myriad of death, myriad deaths. Right. Odysseus is the same thing. Like Odysseus hasn't actually lost anything in Ithaca. The suitors have been sitting at home at his house for three years, but he was gone for 17. Right. And he gets home. Everyone's still alive. Maybe he has some cattle, but they lost. So, you know, and he his murders dog, everyone. Dog. Yeah, he's poor dog. Right. Um, so, um, his dog, but nobody killed his dog, right? The gods are responsible for that. Um, so, so that's where I think like part, part of, um, thinking about the toxicity of hero of heroism is then going to the next level. And if you have an uncritical view of Achilles and Odysseus, how does that inform your view of your place in the world? It says, I deserve these things and I can take them from others. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. right? And to go further, so Odysseus, if I think about like settler colonialism and the rhetoric of slavery in Europe um, post the discovery, rediscovery of the Americas, what do you see but what Odysseus thinks is okay? Oh, here's somebody else's land. This person doesn't act like my people do. So I can go in and steal from him and blind him and it's okay. Right. Like scholars all the time will say it's OK that Odysseus blinded the Cyclops because the Cyclops transgressed against the rules of Xenia. And I'll say, holy shit. No, it is not according to the rules of Xenia to break into somebody's house and take their stuff and then be like, you should give me a present. Right. Everything he does there is wrong. Yeah, he's he's not a he's not doing Xenia himself. And. The Cyclops is not meant to be explicitly Greek either. So it's also a question of how much Xenia applies. Right. But that's the question. So the idea is that like our values don't apply mm -hmm. to him because he's not Greek. Mm. Right. This is the this is sort of the rot at the core uh, of Greek thought um, because Aristotle, too. I mean, one of the things I, I get back to all the time that frustrates me is there's not one ancient author who writes against slavery. There's not one. 
the best you get is Seneca saying, you should be nice to your slaves. And, Pl and Pliny saying, um, yeah, you know, I heard about the story of my of a guy getting murdered by his slaves in the bath. So you should be careful. Right. It's not like these are the human beings like that idea does not exist. And so that's what like. So for me, like talk about the toxicity of her of her mm -hmm. myth um, is how does it make us see ourselves in a way uh, in the world that's harmful to others, but also harmful to ourselves? Because how much does believing you're an alpha male, right, um, or or a hero, how much does that deprive you um, from deep and rich relationships with others, whether it's your own spouse or friends or children, right? It turns people, it makes you an agent, and turns everybody else into tools or instruments in service of your actions. And I think that like, this is the lesson of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like if you listen closely, uh, Achilles and Odysseus are, are miserable. Things are terrible. Nothing good turns out for them. And it's their own fault because of the way they act, because of the way they instrumentalize each other's and work in the world and, and live in the world. And this is why like when I try to teach people about myth, I'm like, look, the Iliad and the Odyssey draw on myth, right? They integrate myths and mythical patterns into their narratives, but they aren't myth there's something very different. Mm -hmm. The idea of anyone, and that I know it is hugely prevalent, of considering Achilles. I mean, and Odysseus too, but Achilles, it, it is so explicit, like from the opening pages, you know, that I think it, like with Odysseus, it takes him a little bit longer to become obviously quite so horrible. But Achilles, it's, yeah, like you said, like the opening of the the poem is basically like, look how many deaths he caused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. And, yeah. and, you know, people will try to take it away by saying, well, Manus, the first word of the Iliad, rage, is a divine type of rage, right? Um, and so Achilles is semi-divine, so it's different. Um, but then again, I go back to something I said earlier. I think part of what the Iliad and the Odyssey do is explain why heroes are bad, why we don't need Debbie gods anymore, and the danger that they present to communities. Right? Because across the board, even someone like like Troy is dependent upon like a royal family and their interests, and like nobody like they barely ever consider giving Helen back. Right? They're just like, well, Paris did this. We're in charge. Sucks to be a Trojan who's <laughs> Trojan who's not us, you know. And it's just such a like fundamentally anti-social, anti-communal, anti-family stance. Um, that I can't see that ancient people, I mean, I know we have evidence of ancient people reading it positively, mm -hmm. um, but I can't see that as being the sum and total effect. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it also goes to sort of the problems. So back to a sort of platonic idea, um, the problems of mimetic art to begin with, right? Like you can create a heroic narrative that is deeply critical of heroes and everyone will miss the point because they're so primed to follow the heroic narrative. They're like, yeah, Achilles, yeah, Odysseus. And you're just like, wait, 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 we're rooting for terrible things, mm -hmm. you know? So I have a question in relation to the, what you're saying about, you know, specifically, certainly in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey about, you know, the way these heroes are antithetical to community and democracy and, and hero worship and is sort of the opposite. I'm so fascinated then by my well-acknowledged, like least favorite, I think he's a dirt human being, Theseus, because 
not only does Theseus, and granted, he's not, you know, from Epic in the same way. He's not that old. He's a much newer hero, um, quote unquote hero, but he is directly connected with Athenian democracy, but also... I mean, and I know they just somehow didn't see that what he did was bad, but I'm just fascinated by that idea and the connection to him. <laughs> well, look, I mean, we have to divide between um, which Theseus stories matter, right? Mm. So part of the problem is like our best evidence for the full cycle of Theseus tales is Plutarch, right? right, right. And Plutarch is one, non-Athenian, and two, like 700 years after the Pisistratids. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's like, that's as far away, away as we are from Boccaccio. Right. I mean, that, I don't know much about Boccaccio and I'd make up some stuff from Wikipedia if I had to say something. I always use Shakespeare as my example to put it into context for people. But even that's like he's a little closer. <laughs> right. 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 Um, so so I, I think that, you know, uh, what and then what is done with Theseus in Athens. Right. So Theseus is actively rehabilitated um, as as a founding hero during the 5th century BCE, right? And so narratives where they have him go and like solving Thebans problems, right? Um, this is part of an sort of a, you know, not an active propaganda program, but of a cultural ministry, right? Going out there and trying to say, well, Theseus, he was a good guy. But if we go to the earlier tales, he's got the typical problems all heroes have. They have daddy issues. They have women problems. Right. Um, and they go out and do some great deeds that are often like questionable in their greatness. Right. Sorry, she's getting not, uh, sleepy. So I'm just going to pick her up. So, you know, and, and then I, I, what I love about the stories of, of Theseus is, is the double sidedness of them. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's credited with the Sonarchismus, right, bringing the, the villages together. But let's be honest, that can't have been an easy process. Right. Because it's one where like Athens dominates all these other places. Right. I was just talking about talking with a student the other day about the boy about the Boeotian League and how in Boeotia, right, there's a league and there are other cities and Thebes is the chief city. And so it's clear that there are multiple things going on there. Um, And Attica had other settlements, too. But Mm -hmm. Athens so thoroughly dominated. them. So I think Theseus reflects that in a bit Um, and just sort of this. You know, I, I think he's like the other heroes. He's he's screwed up, right? He's complicated. Um, and, you know, uh, what I actually like about the 5th century as well is we get some of his co- um, complexity, mm-hmm. like in the Hippolytus, right, mm-hmm. by Euripides. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't like the story you tell about someone who's not a little weird, right? Like, who doesn't have some issues. Um, so I, I think, like, we, you know, what we need to do in talking about Theseus is divide between the sort of range of myths around a heroic figure that's you get with anybody from more or less, not official, but semi-official Athenian propaganda from the um, hegemonic period. Right. Um, because the emphasis is very different. I think that you, you get, it's clear from art and there are people much smarter than me who've written about this, where there's an attempt to make Theseus as cool as Heracles, mm-hmm. right? Because this is an Athenian Theban rival thing. Like they have Heracles, like so do the Spartans. What do we have? Yay, Theseus. Um, so there are images and like with Theseus in a bull and Heracles in a bull. And then there are some where you're like, could be either dude, 
we're not really we're not really mm-hmm. sure. Um, and so I think that you know when well I, maybe I ask you what part about Theseus makes you the angriest? Like what do you hate the most about it? I it's all of it together I think, but I also realize like I haven't necessarily come across a ton of the more political aspects of his mythology that would have been you know created for that more more of that reason. But I'm I'm talking more of I think that the bandits en route from treason to Athens is his own propaganda. And granted, I mean, it's kind of like, like Odysseus style propaganda. Like he gets to Athens and he's like, Oh my God, you'll never guess how much trouble I had getting here. I went through all of the worst bandits you could imagine. Can you believe this guy would bend trees and break people in half from it? So more so in that way of like completely unbelievable fabrications to make himself seem good. And, and, you know, when I hear that, what I what I hear is, all right, we had this dude, we had this tradition of someone who, who made human law, right? And so distinction is like Heracles makes the world safe for human beings by killing monsters. Theseus makes it safe for human beings by killing off um, monstrous people. And when I look at it, I'm like, all right, so we just like with Heracles, you have a bunch of people who are like, oh, he did this. No, he did that. So we just add them all up. I think with Theseus, it's like, Oh, I heard he he punished a, a ridiculous guy who cut people short into bed. So I heard that he kicked a guy down a hill and fed him to a turtle. Like it, it's a it, it's all these weird folktale motifs knitted together in a narrative that's really like how can we create a cool dude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and each of them it's about you know, and then if you want to think about it, be about the falsification of it what are the values that are espoused at the core, right? It's about having someone to make the world safe for a specific view of civilization, mm-hmm. right? Um, and for better or for worse, for me, Theseus is an emanation of that, um, right? He's going to establish civilization for you, but there are there are costs there, right? Which is dealing with a schmuck like this um, and what happens. I know, like, cause, so for me... What, what I often find interesting um, about Theseus is how he forgets things, right? So I know a lot of people yeah. are like, well, he uses Ariadne and abandons her. That's true, right? But he also conveniently forgets to change his sails when he comes back to Athens. And I, I'm super suspicious. I don't think it was an accident because like his dad was kind of a creep um, and not a good dad. And Theseus got to be king of Athens after that. And that's what I mean when I say the whole of it. So it's like the bandits. It's the um, well, it's the trying to kidnap or succeeding briefly in kidnapping Helen. It's the helping his friend kidnap Persephone, the Ariadne. Yeah, the, that, the, the kidnapping stuff is really that that that's just gross. Yeah, Helen's like twelve. Like, well, in some traditions, yeah, she, sometimes she's younger. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, I think twelve is generous. Yeah, well, and, <laughs> and it's so explicit too that he recognizes how creepy it is because he's like, "I'll kidnap her, lock her away until she's old enough," and you're like, "That doesn't make it better." <laughs> like, I know, I know, but so again, it's it's almost like a like an MRA or incel thing, like mm-hmm. like look at that preteen. Let's uh, kidnap them and uh, raise them to be our wives. Like that's that's gross. Yeah. Yeah. So 
So that's that's what I mean. Yeah, the whole of it, the Ariadne Phaedra later, um, you know, it's he's just a messy guy. To he him. really is. But but again, if we again, this is where if you look, if you think of myth, of multiforms in myth, and you see him as a later or or idio, um, idiomatic version of Heracles, mm-hmm. you're like it's got all the same elements and all the same grossness. And I think maybe the reason why we don't get as upset about Heracles is nobody, there's no pretense that he's about civilization or Mm -hmm. Athens, right? Mm -hmm. Like Athens is held up as civilization, as logic, philosophy. And then we're like, really? Theseus? Like, he's your man? That's it. Exactly. Like, to me, Heracles is presented as a bit more of the traditional hero, like traditional by that, I mean, Greek understanding more so of like, he protected people, but also was kind of fucked up and did really bad things. Yeah. But we're, whereas Theseus is taken by or is presented by the Athenians. Oh, I forgot about the Amazons too. That's his other big issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's presented by the Athenians as their great hero founder. And so I think it's, it's so much easier. Yeah. To look at him and be like, okay, but you're awful. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. And that's the thing. And then, but, but another way to think about him, and I don't know if this will help, um, is that, he is in a way a sacrificial victim for the founding of democracy, mm-hmm. right? There's a way that in Athens, he's the last hero. We mm-hmm. see all the problems. Um, he did the stuff that he needed to do and then he went away. Right. And that's a part of it that, that I think is really important. If we look at sort of the end uh, of mythical narratives or the transition to sort of hysterical, uh, hysterical, historical ones, um, is that in each case you're like, well, Theseus, he did some good things, but, it's a good thing he's not around anymore because he's messy and gross um, and he did some bad things too. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, th- I think that that's, I, I wish that more people would have your response to Theseus, to Odysseus and Achilles and Heracles mm-hmm. and understand that like these are not figures we should be emulating. Um, and we can identify the, with them as long as we understand that like we have a sh- sort of shared propensity to weakness with these figures. Um, mm-hmm. But we definitely shouldn't be like, yay, let's be like Heracles or man, I want to be Achilles when I grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious then, because I have always kind of, based on what I've found, um, figured that Cadmus is the least problematic hero and possibly almost not problematic at all. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether he has secret problematic things I haven't found. I mean, there are two things. All right. So I, I found all the problems. But one thing that I find problematic about Cadmus is so it's the origin stories, right? He's from he's from the Levant, right? Mm-hmm. And his sister Europa gets carried off and he's like, I'm gonna go find my sister. And he tracks her all the way to Greece. And he gets there and gets an oracle, and the oracle's like, Don't worry about her. Found a city. Right. And then he's like, Okay, I won't worry about her. I'm like, I feel like, you know, you should go find your sister. You're right. <laughs> that bothers me. And then the, something I've never figured out satisfactorily, and it may have to do with um, the fragmentary fragmentary end of the play, um, but at the end of Euripides' Bacchae, Cadmus is forced to go into exile and to suffer too, along mm-hmm. with Agawe. Um, and there's something weird going on there, mm. right? Um, so his story is interesting because it's a different pattern, right? It's about balancing coming from uh, from uh, balancing exogamy and indigeneity, 
right? It's this weird tale. So and we have many of them in, in the in Greek founding tales of these stories where we're trying to negotiate the fact that we know our ancestors came from elsewhere, but we also want to be from here. So we're going to tell these weird stories. Um, and there's something with, so there's all, all evidence of some cylinder seals in Thebes with the name um, QDM. I don't, I don't know the Semitic language for it, but it's like a guy who comes from the East, right? Mm-hmm. So his name is like a foreign name to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, and we don't have enough of Theban ritual and myth, um, but I wonder how they would have received him too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this problematic founder who's from away, but then is our founder and then his sown men, which is a weird sort of intervention. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of weirdness. I mean, but generally, he, he's okay. But the fact that he didn't find his sister and like, he, you know, I understand listening to oracles, I guess. Um, but I would have found a way to find my sister too. Yeah, I guess my thought, and I a lot of this is based in, so I've been writing a novel about Cadmus and Harmonia since like before I even went into classics as a field um that apparently will never be finished but so a lot of it is like i've come up with i think explanations in my head and then i forget that they're not in the sourcing so in my head it's because he knows that zeus has his sister and so not only does the oracle tell him that he shouldn't bother but he explicitly is like well i probably you know couldn't get her back from zeus at this rate anyway so maybe i'll you know do these other things first yeah yeah. and i think that's fine i think cadmus is, is cool like he, he's not like he's not as terrible as others, um, and the founding of Thebes is, is fascinating in that way. Um, but you know, and then there are other people from myth that I think are, are less questionable as well. I think Tiresias, if we're staying in mm-hmm. Thebes, is a great character. If we're sticking to male ones or those who are both male and female, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, but it, it, he is not in the traditional sense a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what I find interesting about Cadmus because he is traditionally a hero and he doesn't I suppose my my version because of how deep I am in these heroes my version of the least problematic is like well he didn't assault anyone and he didn't murder anyone I know but it's a but actually but but here's the thing though this is not an uncommon reflex of toxic masculinity but right? mm-hmm. like how many times have you talked to friends who are like, oh, you're dating this guy. And they're like, well, he doesn't, you know, he's not an outright racist, right? Like he's not in prison, right? Like he he hasn't assaulted anyone. Like, you know, uh, it, this happens. We make allowances because we set the, the bar pretty low for men, right? But, but w- when people ask me about heroic figures that I will defend, uh, I usually end up on Diomedes. Um, mm. um, because generally he's a stand-up guy. Right. He does his job all the time. Um, he wounds a god. Right. Um, and when he leaves, he goes home and like his wife has cheated on him and he feels bad and he runs away. Like he goes and lives somewhere else. I didn't know that bit. That's nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's he's uh, he's OK. Mm-hmm. I think I gave him a hard time in the Iliad. Now I've got to revisit. Yeah. I mean, he's mm-hmm. kind of he boasts a lot in the Iliad and he's a little mm-hmm. too much of like, you know, on Agamemnon's side, but not because he likes Agamemnon, right? Like Odysseus, he's like, we want to go home. Mm-hmm. In order to go home, we have to do this job. Our boss sucks, right? But dying sucks more. So let's do this right. Yeah. I mean, 
I just love talking about these people so yeah. much. But it is interesting to like limit the hero or you know and, the the low bar of the heroes. Right, and and not to like stick with Diomedes, but he also mm-hmm. shows up in in the Aeneid, right? And mm-hmm. Turnus reaches out, tries to get Diomedes and his people to ally against Aeneas, um, and Diomedes is like, with Troy fallen, like I have no I have no problems with the Trojans, mm-hmm. right? Like it's over. Yeah. Turnus, you go be Turnus. I'm going to stay here and spend some more time not dying. Yeah, that is. I forgot about that bit. I got, yeah, I mean, I think I'm coming around on. To be fair, I was once as an undergraduate um, kicked out of a bar for arguing this very point. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I've always been super cool, but we were getting rambunctious and arguing, you know, again about heroes. Someone was about Ido Menaus. Um, I don't remember who else everybody was arguing, but I was like, at one point, like I slammed my glass on the counter. I was like, Diomedes, motherfucker. Um, and we were asked to leave. <laughs> That's the best reason to be able <laughs> to leave a bar. Right. <laughs> like, I just got too nerdy, even for the bar. Right. They're like, you can't have this. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, well, I won't I won't keep you any longer unless you have anything, you know, you want to add about these heroes or Diomedes specifically. I mean, I, there's always more to add. Yeah. I just think that um, people, I, I, I think that, that if I could close with anything, it's like these myths and these stories come from living conditions, right? So people say there's one interpretation and not another. They're not acknowledging that like they were engineered for plurality of responses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think your listeners and you, what you what we're, what we're seeing over the past 20 years is people critically re-engaging and reimagining. Um, and I think this is exactly what's supposed to happen. All right. So one of the things, you know, in criticizing heroes, um, especially since, you know, Song of Achilles, the Penelope ad, all of these re-envisionings of it, um, I actually think we've lost narratives that did the same thing in the ancient I think there mm-hmm. were women's narratives that told the stories. Mm-hmm. We know that there was a long catalog of women that told the genealogy of the heroes from the perspectives of brides and mothers. Um, and so I would just say people should keep pushing, mm-hmm. right? Keep reimagining um, what heroic narratives were like and not just sort of settling on the stories that we've been told. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know about the... the is it the catalog of women that's attributed to Hesiod? Or yeah, yeah. And so the fragments... We only have, you know, we have a lot of fragments um, and the best sort of representation of what it might have been like in full form is Odysseus's uh, catalog of women in Odyssey 11. Um, but it's just a different way of structuring tales, of focusing on women's experiences. Um, and this was hugely popular in the ancient world. And so I'd like to think that we there was lots of this, right? And there were different ways of centering narratives and, and marginalizing heroic narratives by focusing on, on women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people engage with myth in a critical way and reimagine it, um, it's not that we're doing something new. We are, but I think we're also returning um, some of the perspectives that over time have been winnowed out. Mm-hmm. I think so much about what women's stories might've been told that we just don't have. I mean, cause there's, there's no way they weren't there. there. Absolutely. Well, the, the one, the, the area where I think about it the most um, is in sort of women's health, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you read a lot of ancient medicine, there's some stuff about women's health, but such little stuff about childbirth that mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, there must have been an entire different tradition. Um, and, you know, there are parallels in the modern world uh, of oral traditions of women's health matters. Um, and so that's one thing. And there's a book by Andromache Karanika 
uh, called Work, uh, Work Songs, I think, or something like that, where she reconstructs traditions of women's work songs as well. Hmm. Um, and so there's lots of fascinating stuff, but because we spend to- so much time talking about all these toxic men, uh, we don't like pay enough attention to reconstructing these other voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Do you, and then I will let you go, um, but do you think that it was actually Hesiod writing? No, so Hesiod is no. an oral tradition just like Homer. Yeah, okay. And of he... the same antiquity. Right. That makes sense. Because he, I mean, the stuff we do have attributed to him, works and days. I just think of works and days and Pandora. And I think there's no way he's writing nice things about women if it's the same guy. No, it's not. It's just a different <laughs> tradition. And people yeah. get obsessed because he actually gives a biography at the beginning of the poem. He's like, oh, mm. I was arguing with my brother Percy's. Um, but that's that's just conventional stuff. Right. It's like Mm. by reciting that biography, whoever's singing receives the authority to sing the song. Right. It's Mm. like putting on your Hesiod face. Yeah. I love that. That's so fascinating. Okay, now I want to go read the fragments of the catalog women. So thank you. Oh, you should. I I don't know why I haven't already. I think it's because I get thrown by fragmentary stuff just because it's hard to no, and you should be skeptical because like the fragments again have been only preserved um to support the main narratives mm-hmm. right um mm-hmm. they're, they're selected because oh this thing in the iliad reminds people of this thing in the in the right. catalog but still if you imagine the pattern and see how what we have works um you can really start to consider other options mm-hmm so fascinating thank you so much for doing this this has been so great i appreciate you doing it with the baby on hand she's been an adorable addition (laughs) she she's a you know delight before we go i want to thank you for the work work you do in popularizing myth um uh, you're definitely having more impact than i do um it's huge and uh it's appreciated thank you i'm i'm always really happy to hear that i have a weird it's a weird little world I live in of this. I, I love now that I'm talking to people like you and just writing it out. It's really, it's very, no, it is. it's endless, yeah, which yeah. is terrifying, but also invigorating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so fun and nerdy. <laughs> nerds thank you as always for listening i fucking love these conversations i really you know i'm just so thrilled i get to have them i'm so thrilled you all seem to really love them i've been hearing that more and more from all of you and that makes me so happy i just feel like i've learned so damn much in the last year it's only been it's been less than a year since i've been doing these conversation episodes and yet they feel like such a huge and important part of the conver- of the podcast so i'm just i'm so thrilled you all seem to agree do i wish i understood editing more Maybe. Do I wish I could feel like I could give it to somebody else to do, even though I'm so obsessed with crafting the piece myself? I also wish that, yes. One day, maybe I'll figure my shit out. But until then, fuck, these conversations are fun. You all get me. And so we just have a great time. (laughs) Now I'm just rambling. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, You can find places to read more of Joel's work and follow him on Twitter and things in the episode's description. And otherwise, I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.